This morning we're continuing our study in 1 Peter for the months of June and July. We're going through this little New Testament book written especially for that person sitting here today who feels overwhelmed by trouble. And it seems that one problem after another after another is coming your way. And maybe you're not experiencing persecution as the readers were of this letter, the original readers, but you're experiencing trouble and you've got questions, how do I live, how do I respond to this, and that's the focus of this particular book. Today, chapter 2, verse 11, is where we're going to be reading in a moment, uh, Peter is going to talk to us about how to deal when things get really, really bad. And we've, we're calling this today, this particular message, show them Jesus when it hurts. Show them Jesus when it hurts. Last Sunday morning, uh, reports were coming in while we were in worship about the awful, tragic, and horrific terrorist attack on a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. You know, as believers, there's only one way you and I can respond to something like that, and that's with great Christ-like compassion and care. And yet, even as Christians began to voice that, uh, in the media, there were some ACLU attorneys, there were gay activists, there were politicians who immediately seized this tragedy to try and turn public opinion against their opponents uh, on the subjects of things like gun control and gay marriage and, and same gender or, or gender mixed bathrooms. And, and no surprise there. That, that people would want to use a tragedy to that end. But here's what struck me somewhat as a surprise. It was striking to me that when Christians expressed sadness and sympathy, they were told that if you believed homosexuality was a sinful and broken usage of human sexuality, like adultery is and like promiscuity is, that if you believe that, that if you oppose gay marriage and mixed gender bathrooms, then you were partially to blame for what happened. And Christians who hold deep biblical points of view are portrayed as a people who hate. This is not new. As early as the first century, when this letter was written in the 60s, uh, the first 60s, that when this was written, even then Christians were portrayed as people of hate during Nero's persecution when he set fire to Rome. And everybody pretty much knew that he was responsible for it. Christians were set apart as the scapegoats for what happened, and they were persecuted. They put wild animal skins on them so that wild dogs would tear them apart in the Colosseum. They, they used them, they crucified them, they used them as human torches in Nero's gardens at night. In the face of that, a Roman senator and an early historian of Rome named Tacitus wrote these words describing the, the, what was happening. He said, an immense multitude, and it's talking about Christians, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. Hatred against mankind in the late part of the first century A.D. It's not new. The enemy has always targeted Christians because we hold the gospel and we share and we want to 
share and demonstrate the love of Christ to a watching world? How do you respond to people like that? And listen, what happened this week in the media is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. I really don't care who's elected. It's not going to get better. Here's the principle that I believe Peter teaches you and me. Here's the principle. To live my life, especially when I hurt, in a way that influences others to turn to God. I mean, that's our purpose. That's why we're here. In verse 11, this is what Peter writes. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles or the nations, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter calls Christians, he gives us a name, calls us two things. Calls us sojourners. These are people who have no legal, no legal rights living in another country, not their own. Sojourners. He calls us pilgrims. People living among people who are not their people. Uh, not with your family, not with your your home country, your home people. He calls those sojourners and pilgrims. And that's the foundation for his statement to abstain from fleshly lusts. What's he saying? This world's not your home. Don't get attached to stuff. Don't fight over things. Don't, don't get, get into what this world is all about, this whole world system. You belong to another kingdom. You belong to another place and time. In verse 4, chapter 1, we saw that God as part of our birthright, has an inheritance that he's keeping for you and me, and we are being kept for that inheritance. And so he says, abstain from flesh and lust. And uh, and that makes sense, because every one of us is born with a natural tendency to be selfish in our desires. The body, uh, the Bible calls it the flesh. Uh, Inside of you, if you give in to that, if you live according to that rule, that, that principle, you're always going to be about what I want, what I like, what I want to get for myself. You're going to get up in the morning and think that. You're going to think that in the middle of the day. You're going to think that when you come home. What am I going to do tonight? What do, what do I want to do? What do I want? And if you live that way long enough and deeply enough, you can actually become addicted to your own wants and desires. Your whole happiness is based on whether you get what you want. Your sadness is based on not getting what you want. And when you pursue it long enough and deeply enough, if you grab hold of the wrong thing, it can grab hold of you. We call that addiction. And what you want then becomes something that wants you and it controls you and dominates you all the time so the flesh can take over. So Paul's, uh, Peter's argument is this, against living for fleshly lusts. He said, this is not your home. What you have is better. So distance yourself from these desires that would root you in this existence. You have some other way to live. And this is what's really remarkable at this moment. Most of us at this point would say, amen, Peter. We should not live according to fleshly desire. But then he applies it to the situation of the Christian who is being persecuted and abused and hurt by someone in this world. And it's kind of surprising. Listen to verse 12 again. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, 
Glorify God in the day of your visitation. What does it mean to glorify God in the day of visitation? Well, in other places in the New Testament, when God visits a people, like in um, James uses this expression in Acts 15. He says, Simon, you know, went to Cornelius, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says he went to Cornelius, and God visited the Gentiles. And so what he's describing is what happens when the gospel comes and someone hears it, and they put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they are changed. He said, these people who call you evildoers, they're going to watch what you do, they're going to listen to what you do, see how you live, and the consequence of your behavior is going to result in them giving glory to God. Their trash talk becomes worship because of something that you do that's very different and that captures their attention. And so we're different in the way we live. What do they see? He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That word honorable um, is not the normal word for honor. It literally means good or beautiful. And, and, and something that's good or beautiful describes something that you and I value very much. Someone's playing a ball game, football game, coming up in August. They make a great pass. And there's an uh, interception or someone catches the ball. We say, that was beautiful. That was good. And he says, having your conduct honorable, beautiful, a beautiful life. Living a beautiful life. Spirit-filled lovers of Jesus. A radical difference in the way we do relationships. Loving people, even when they're hard to love. Different in the way we react when someone hurts us. Where'd Peter get this? We heard it first in the Sermon on the Mount. Heard it first from Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 16. Who said, let your light so shine before men. Live that beautiful life. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good work. See what you do, but the result is they glorify your Father in heaven. Well, Peter took all of this and he applied it to his readers who were facing at that moment abuse and persecution in the world. This was not hypothetical for them. I don't know what you're experiencing, but for them this was real. And this was really happening to them. And he applies it to them. How can I show Jesus to others when it hurts? How can I live the beautiful life in front of people who are hateful? Number one, And what's interesting is he goes through this um, after verse 12. Everything that follows in chapter 2, most of chapter 3, really most of the rest of the book, is illustrating this principle. How can I live my life in a way that wins the hearts of others? How can I show Jesus to others when it hurts? Number one, win the praise of those in authority. Now that's kind of surprising. Win the praise of those in authority. The first place he goes is the way you and I relate to authority. In verse 13, he says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, literally every creation of man, every created structure, every organization, uh, whatever there is a structure of authority and rules involved, submit yourself to that for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God. And so what he's describing is that it doesn't matter whether this government is oppressive, a good government, bad government, doesn't matter. He says, yield to that, submit to that, play by the 
play by the rules, live in that structure in such a way that you're able to live a beautiful life and win the praise of those in authority. You know, somebody in the Bible who illustrates this very powerfully, I think, is Daniel under King Darius. Now, Daniel was a man of God who was ripped from his country and his homeland and forced to live as a prisoner under a foreign government in a foreign land. And he could have moped about that. He could have griped about that. He could have complained about that. He could have rebelled and tried to plan an insurrection, but he didn't do any of that. He said, this is where I am. I'm going to do it. I'm going to live a beautiful life in these circumstances. And boy, did he. He did it in so well that King Darius loved him. King Darius respected him. King Darius admired him. He loved this man. And, and his enemies, Daniel had enemies who were jealous of the influence he had over the king. And so they were looking for a way to trip him up, to find a way where he was doing something wrong. In fact, this is what it says in Daniel 6, verse 4. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. And so they're trying to get at him, but he, he never cheated he never changed the numbers. He never skimmed off the top. He never told a white lie. He never complained about the king. At no time was he found to be anything but faithful. He was living a beautiful life. So they had to come up with a plan to get Daniel in trouble. They couldn't accuse him of anything, so they were trying to trap him in some other way. And here's what they came up with. They, they appealed to the king's vanity. They came up with this plan that during a 30-day period, nobody could pray to any god of any sort. All they could do is pray to the king. And he went for it. And when the king made a, a decision, a decree, it could not be undone. And anyone who disobeyed this was supposed to die. And so Daniel heard about it. And Daniel, who was living a beautiful life, uh, couldn't stop praying. And so he goes up to his room in his regular time, opens the windows towards Jerusalem, where the temple was that represented the presence of God. And he goes and he, and he prays. They break into his room. They arrest him. And, uh, and, and they, they remind the king that you've got to do what you said you were going to do. This man has disobeyed your order to pray to no one except the king. He was put in the lion's den. You remember that story? Thrown into the lion's den... And the king, King Darius, was absolutely distraught. He loved Daniel. In fact, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 18, Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And he so loved this man who was living a beautiful life. He knew about his prayer life. He knew about his trust in God. He didn't share it. He wasn't Jewish. He didn't have faith in Yahweh. But he respected it. And Daniel had won the praise of this king. And of course, he survived the lion's den 
And all those that accused him wound up in the lion's den. Well, pastor, should we work for change in an unjust society? Well, of course we should. We should work for change. We should work to put things right that aren't right. Injustices, if we have the opportunity to speak to those things, we should with respect, but also with biblical clarity, we should speak to those things and say, that's not right, that should change. But listen, our goal is not to try to make America a better place to go to hell from. Our job is to win people to Christ. And if I really want to change America, I should share my faith. Because ultimately what changes America is a change in the population of the people who come to know Jesus. So do you have problems at work? Do you have problems with your boss? I don't think there's one staff person here. Do you have problems with your boss? How do you respond to that? How do most people respond to problems with their boss at work? What do they do? They grumble. Oh, gosh, this stinking idiot, whatever. They grumble. They, they're not happy. They, they speak dark things about their boss. And if they don't grumble, they gossip. Well, let me, I need you all to pray for me. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you about my boss, you know. And, and, and we can couch it in a thousand different ways, but we, we, we tell everybody who will listen about how terrible our work situation is, about how terrible our, our boss is. What if we stood out as Peter calls us to in this, in this passage? What if instead of blasting and tearing down and talking down those in authority, what if we yielded, we played hard, we found out what the objectives were of that boss or that authority, we did our best to help that organization be successful. We did our best to help them obtain their goals. What if we played hard? What if we prayed hard? What if that boss, what if the other leaders in that organization knew that we were praying for them, that other believers in our, in our workplace, that we got together and we interceded for them so much so that they would come to us occasionally and say, hey, would you pray for me? Would you pray for my wife and me? Would you pray for me and my kids? Would you pray for that stuff? What if we played hard? What if we prayed hard? What if we loved hard so that every time they saw us walk in the door, the first thought they had was not, oh, no, but their heart suddenly grew joyful because you had showed up for work. How can I show Jesus to others when it hurts? Secondly, number two, never let them see in you what they say about you. Never let them see in you what they say about you. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, so they're saying things about you, saying things about you that are wrong, calling you a name, speaking against you, they may, by your good works which they observe, which they see, glorify God in the day of visitation. So they're saying something about you, but that's not what they see. They see something totally different. They see the beautiful life. And so you don't let them see in you what they say about you. In verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. You know, a couple years ago, we, uh, 
I did a series on Colossians. Y'all remember this guy? Who is this? Anybody remember? The sin monster. Yes, the sin monster. And we talked about how every person is born with a sin monster inside them. And that part of our challenge to walk with God is not to feed the sin monster. We're supposed to mortify it, starve the sin monster, right? We don't feed the sin monster. The more we feed the sin monster, the bigger and stronger he gets. So we want to starve him. What if somebody comes and pokes you, does something that's hurtful to you? What comes out? What do you want to come out? This guy? Because when he comes out, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to poke back, aren't you? You're going to say things, you're going to do things, and it's not going to be like Jesus. (laughs) What if instead of this coming out, instead of people seeing the sin monster come out when they poke me, what if I turned around, somebody pokes me, hurts me, and what if I offered a gift? The meaning of the word grace is gift, not deserved. And when someone hurts you, they don't deserve a gift, do they? But what if instead of the sin monster coming out, you offered a gift? And that's what Peter's describing here, this beautiful life coming out instead of the sin monster coming out. They expect you to get mad. They expect you to to reject them. They expect you to do hurtful things. Now, how do you do this? How do you starve the sin monster? How do you offer the gift? How do you let Jesus come out? How do you live the beautiful life? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, I think if if I have not served you well enough as a pastor it's that I have not emphasized the beautiful life that we are called to live enough the beautiful life Jesus says come to me he says take my yoke on you it's easy you say it's really hard to be like Jesus well sure it is if Jesus isn't involved but he says to live with me in such a way live in a relationship with me abide in me in such a way that you're, you're just resting in me, you're, you're coming to me, and you're, you're surrendering your direction, you're surrendering your decisions, you're surrendering your life. You're not having to fix everybody, you're not having to fix everything, you're not having to drive, you're not having to push. You're simply resting in Christ. You're saying, I'm coming into your yoke, Lord. I'm going to abide in you, and I know that when I abide in you, you will produce the fruit the beautiful life. Jesus said, I've spoken these things to you that your joy might be full. That your joy might be full. There's a a thing that happens when we have a real relationship with Christ and I'm trusting him and I'm relying on him to where where he is then able to live his life through me the way Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20. That in that relationship with him, there's this overflow of of love. There's an overflow of of joy. There's an overflow of peace. When everybody else is falling apart, you have the capacity. You may never think that you can do this, but you do. You have the ability in Christ to overflow with this beautiful life 
that other people look at and say, how in the world can he or she be so at ease and different and peaceful in this crazy world? Because it's not me. It's Christ who lives in the believer. And if you and I would get a hold of that, this part about never letting them see in you what they say about you, the evildoer thing, uh, that won't be hard. Whole different way to live. Well, what does it look like when he's living through you? Verse 17 describes it, honor all people, value all people, raise the price tag on all people, love the brotherhood, uh, fear God, fear not doing his will more than anything else. Don't worry about pleasing everybody else. Just worry about pleasing him. Honor the king. Value the king. Raise the price tag on whoever gets elected. I mean, even if it's a Democrat, even if it's a Republican, no matter who it is, honor the king. Raise the value. Why do we do that? Well, we do it for the gospel's sake. We do it so that we might win hearts. We We do it so that they may never see in us what they say about us. Number three, how can I show Jesus to others when it hurts? Number three, keep doing the right thing in the face of evil. Keep doing the right thing in the face of evil. Verse 18, servants, and that should be slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear. And it's not a fear of them, by the way, it's a fear of God. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And there were 60 million people who fit that description when he wrote it in the Roman Empire. 60 million, one-third of the population were slaves. They had no rights. This is amazing that he would say this to them. He went from somebody who's free, living in a in an ordered society with a king, to someone who had absolutely no rights and was treated as property by somebody else. And he said, if you're in that situation, he tells the people in Corinth, he said, if you're in that situation, he said, don't be troubled by that. And that's a whole other sermon when he says that to the Corinthians. If you find yourself a slave, don't be troubled by that. He says, if you can be free, get free. You know, buy your freedom. Change your circumstance if you can. But if you can't, be submissive to your master's. Even when they're jerks, even when they're cruel, even when they're hard, Satan's goal is to get you to live in the flesh, to hate. And I can then justify whatever I want to say, whatever I want to do, because slavery is wrong. This way they're treating me is wrong. So I can be any way I want to be. I can live any way I want to because of the maltreatment that I'm getting. And Peter says, no, you can't. You say, well, how can you do that? What kind of person can endure abuse and live that way? It's someone who recognizes that their real master is not that human being in front of them. The only way to live that way is to get a new master. The only way you can deal with that boss who drives you insane is to get a new boss. In verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. That means slaves of God. And so the only solution you have is to get a new boss. If you're not being treated well, if you're not being compensated fairly, 
You cannot justify slacking because they don't pay you enough. You cannot justify skimming off the top, stealing a little bit, taking some of the groceries home because they don't pay you enough. Why? Because I can't do that if Jesus is my boss. I can't slack if he's my boss. I can't steal if he's my boss. And I certainly can't react to the boss with evil if Jesus is my boss. Number four, how can I show Jesus to others when it hurts? Follow Jesus in the way of suffering so that others might live. This is where Peter goes next. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And he didn't resort to abusive speech, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. There were no threats. He let God handle the justice, whatever had to be sorted out, whatever vengeance needed to be done. It says, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus endure suffering and injustice and abuse and hurt and harm. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he tells us, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Why do I put up with the boss? Why do I live in an unjust society or an unfair situation? Why do I why do I try to live a beautiful life in an environment where all I get maybe is hostility from America, or hostility from my society, or hostility from my culture, or hostility from my workplace? Why do I do that? Why do I put up with that? Why? So they might live. So the boss can live. So the king can live. So that they can know Jesus. So they can know Christ. That's why we do it. Why do you think you're here? Why, when you trusted Jesus, did he just leave you here? If it was not so that we could win those who have yet to be won. Jesus came and endured everything that we threw at him as human beings so that we might live. And he calls us to do the same. The story is told of a philosopher, Herbert Spencer, in the 19th century, and he was agnostic. He didn't believe in much. But he wrote some very influential things about Darwinism and applied it to social situations that have continued to affect culture to today. He heard about two great preachers in England at the time, and he wanted to go hear both of them. One of them was a great orator, just spoke very eloquently. And he went to hear him, and after he heard his message, he walks out and he says to himself, what a great sermon. And then he went to hear the second man who happened to be Charles Spurgeon, prince of preachers, man who loved the Lord Jesus with all his heart. And as he listened to him, sitting in a crowd of 10,000 people, listening to one man without a microphone speak to 10,000 people, he walks out of there and he doesn't say, what a great sermon. He walks out and says, what a great savior. Here's the bottom line. Do I care more about satisfying myself or my Savior? 
whatever circumstance you are in, whatever you're facing, is your first reaction, how can I get God to please me in my circumstance? Or is it, Lord, how can I please you in this situation? Am I going to live my life to please me and try to get God involved? Or am I going to live my life to please him? Whatever you're facing, wherever you're struggling with at this moment in your life, that's really the bottom line. Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. As we close, we take time at the end of a service after we study God's word to really think about and respond to what God has said to us. It's an opportunity to make a decision, to say, hey, Lord, I heard what you said to me, and I need to drive this down deeper into my heart. So I'm, I'm setting my heart, Lord, to listen, to apply this, to use this in my life. And I don't know how he's speaking to you about that, but I know that Jesus is here. And this was his word, and his Holy Spirit is at work. And so how does he want you to respond? How has he spoken to you? If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come to Jesus today. Pastors and I will be standing down front. We'll share the gospel, the good news with you of how Jesus died on the cross for your sins, removing them and taking them away so that if you would trust him, just as you are, you could come into a relationship with God that would last for all eternity. And not only will he take your sins away, he will change your life and make you a different person on the inside. He'll change your desires. He'll change your future. He'll change your marriage. He'll change your relationships at work, at home, wherever. As you begin to experience and discover the beautiful life that he has for you. So we want to invite you to come to Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being here, walking among us. Thank you that Jesus endured all of this so that we might live. Lord, today we pray you would mold us increasingly to become the kind of people who would do whatever it takes so that someone else might live. And we ask this in Jesus' name.